Hey, how's it going, everyone? I'm Mark Jorgensen. I'm hosting a podcast today with uh, Jared Whitley. Uh, how's it going, Jared? Uh, it's going great, Mark. I'm flattered to have been invited onto your podcast. Good to have you here. So, Jared, you've been in uh, D.C. for uh, about about 10 years. 10 years. About 10 years. 10 years. I got here at the tail end of 2005. And... Uh, We'll kind of go into a little bit of what, what brought you here and everything like that um, in a minute here. But uh, just kind of give us your, your background. Like, what did you, uh, what have you done? What do you do? What's your, what's your story? So the elevator speech, and I'm making air quotes that <laughs> your uh, listeners can't hear right now. He's making air quotes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, for, uh, that I give people, that I came out here because I've been a reporter back home, and then I came out here because I got a job working for one of my home state senators. I was there for about a, for a couple of years. Then I worked at the White House the last year of the Bush administration. Very busy times with things like the uh, acceleration of the surge, with the um, sort of energy crisis that happened summer two thousand eight, the out of control gas prices, um, and then of course the financial meltdown uh, a month or two later. So those were the big things that that we had to do communications on there. Would you call yourself like a communications expert, communications specialist, or... No, no, expert's better. Let's expert. stick with expert. Okay. So you've worked on the Hill, you went to the White House, then after that you've worked kind of more in the private sector. Yeah, yeah, I've worked in the, in the private sector here um, in, in government while also being involved uh, in government contracting, while also being involved with a variety of different campaigns and media outlets cool. covering a variety of subjects. Um, so just back to the beginning, though, um, what was the initial motivation that kind of brought you here to D.C., like, like kind of beginning? Did you already kind of like dream of it when you were in college and high school? Was it kind of like, oh, D.C. is a place for me? Or was it just kind of something that happened sort of coincidentally? Or what was your... So the anecdote I share with people is there's a scene... You don't have to do anecdotes here. Oh. We can, we can do the, the real... Sorry. No, no, no. People, people like anecdotes. Okay, okay. Is there's a scene in the uh, in the movie Clear and Present Danger with Harrison Ford. It came out in 1994. So I was uh, you know in middle school when that came out. Right. Um, there's a scene where oh he's talking with the president and he says, well if they say you were friends, don't say they were, you were friends. Say you were good friends. If they say you were good friends. Say you were lifelong friends. Don't give them anywhere to go, right? And the idea that he he was like helping the president shape a, a small communications message there. And then there's a scene later on where they're interviewing the president and he says, oh, are you good friends with this guy? And he says, no, we weren't good friends. We were lifelong friends. And and I just remember thinking, oh, that'd be cool. I'd be good at that. I should do that. So that was where the idea started to crystallize. So I, I remember that movie, actually. I remember that, that very scene, actually. Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, though, that ended up kind of backfiring. It worked out initially, but then it kind of backfired a little later on, right? Because the connection was not so good in the longer run. Well, right? well the thing is, um, if I'm a, a really good... I mean, the thing that happens in the movie is that the president is complicit in what turns out to be the death of uh, right. American soldiers and innocent civilians. Um, no communication strategy can save you from such a horrible political decision. Sure, sure. Yeah, I... I he was just triaging it. Right. But it worked out very well initially, and um, you know, Jack Ryan definitely, he kind of gets caught up in that whole mess. Sure, movie. sure. So, uh, it's a great movie, yeah. We invite our listeners to check it out. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find the clip right now on YouTube, and I, I'm not finding it. There's a lot of stuff, but not that scene. Anyway. So, kind of getting into that, though... Um, 
I guess you're kind of touching on your two kind of main, uh, I guess, passions in life, or at least, you know, they've kind of been two, uh, two things at the forefront of your interests for most of your life, which is yes. movies and pop culture. Sure. The, the, the convergence of, of where pop culture meets politics. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a relationship that's uh, a little bit uh, under, less understood in, by, by most people in general. I, th- I think, you know, Hollywood kind of has this fascination with D.C. Mm-hmm. D.C. has a fascination with Hollywood. There sure. is a pretty good connection between the two cities. You know, people end up going to jobs yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah, D.C. is Hollywood for ugly people is what they say. Right, but I, I think, you know, it's a little less understood kind of like how these two kind of interplay with each other and how they kind of mimic and um, each other in many ways. So sure. um, you kind of were telling me there's a couple ideas you had you kind of been mulling over. Um, there's some movies that you you know, have seen, you think there's political connections, what's, mm-hmm. what's kind of your take there? I guess we can kind of, I guess Forrest Gump, we can start there. How does Forrest Gump kind um, of uh, prove that America is truly a conservative nation? Well, you know, Forrest Gump is a, is a 20-year-old movie, so uh, I don't know how relevant it is today, sure. but yet I'm also kind of surprised when old things continue to maintain their relevance for so long after the fact. Right? Um, the thing that's significant about Forrest Gump is it's kind of like a capstone thus far to what the baby boomer life had been like. Right? Because it follows, you know, all these, all these episodes in American history of like the starting of rock and roll and with Elvis Presley and all that kind of stuff and yeah. the Vietnam War and Apple computers and whatnot. Um, and, and I'm certainly not the first one to say this, uh, but it, it's a very much a polemic against counterculture liberalism, right? There's no question but that the simple conservative who becomes a war hero and lives this charmed life is enriched by his values, where his girlfriend, the um, promiscuous, in every sense of the word, uh, girl, uh, enlightened, I'm making some more air quotes, girlfriend, uh, gets caught up in the counterculture, suffers horribly for it, and eventually dies because of it. I mean, there's no, there's no question, but like that, that is uh, there. There's a, a political bent there, a huge one. Because sometimes, like you'll introduce a subject in a text, and you'll say, "We're introducing the subject of the death penalty or taxes or whatever," uh, or you know, in clear and present danger, it's about the war on drugs. Um, it, that movie introduces the idea, but it doesn't really come out and say the war on drugs is good or the war on drugs is bad. It just kind of uses that as the framework. But Forrest Gump definitely has a bent. And the thing that's so remarkable um, is the fact that it was not it won Best Picture the same year that Republicans took over the House and Senate with the contract with America in 1994. Right. That's, that's the remarkable thing is that there's that connection there of this huge upswell of conservatism, of conservatism excuse me, in, in political ranks that we hadn't seen for 30 years um, at the same time in our pop culture as well, that there's that convergence. So, I, I mean, I guess where, where I would be most skeptical, um, I'm not really skeptical of like the overall, you know, your, your conclusions there. I think that's, you know, pretty spot on. But do you think it was a conscious decision of the directors and producers to kind of go that way with it? They're kind of, hey, we're going to kind of put this in here like this. Or was it just kind of a natural way of thinking, you know, about the story and it just, mm. you know, they wanted the hero to kind of come out as kind of this good guy who was going through all this and he wasn't really an active participant. And sure. I think, because he kind of goes into the war 
as sort of like like a willing volunteer, but he's not really into the politics of it. He's not sure. exactly. He doesn't have a deep yeah. understanding of what's going on. Yeah, he meets the president. He meets the president like five different presidents, and he barely knows who they are. Yeah, I mean, he he's not really really as involved with it. So I mean, I I guess what was that? How much do you think there was actually like a conscious choice by the producers to put that in, or is it just kind of, you know, incidental? That's kind of how they think about the life in a time. Uh, hitting on some big topics there. I, so I, well, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. Movie. That's it's that, that big topics yeah, for Mark yeah. Jorgensen. Okay, okay. Um, I I I think you could probably like watch DVD commentaries or read articles with the creators. You know, and it was based on a book. You know, you could look at what the book author said. You could look at what Robert Zemeckis said, and so on and so forth. I think it was Robert Zemeckis. I'm pretty sure the director. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was the director. Of course, yeah. Um, and they've probably, and this is, like, like I said, this is not the kind of thing that I'm hardly the first person to observe this or come up with this. I think National Review did this, uh, like, top 20 most conservative movies ever, and Forrest Gump uh, was on that list. Oh, really? So this is something wow. that they, they recognized a long time ago. In 1995, National Review included Forrest Gump in its list of the best 100 conservative movies of all time. So, you know, this is right after it came out. This is hardly something that people realized 10 years after the fact. Um, uh, the, returning to your question, is this something that they did consciously to try to make a political point, um, or is this something where they were just trying to capture a zeitgeist and like, oh, the country's going to get really conservative again, let's do this. Um, I, I think the answer is somewhere in the middle, where a lot of people just have this sense of there is a traditional America, a conservative America, no matter what time you're in, um, whose values got us to the point we're in, we're in and we're straying from those values and need to return to them. I think, I think that no matter what time the last 200 years you look at, there will be some Americans who feel that way. And for lack of a better term, the one we apply is, is conservative to that. To that. And, what, so, and you also were talking earlier about um, Captain America. The, okay. Uh, the success of Captain America last yeah. movie is another yeah. kind of it illustrates. I, I, I think the recent success uh, of the Captain America character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, definitely ties into that. The idea of, of here's this symbol from very much a bygone era from World War II, a time where, um, you know, there's no question that America was the good guys and the Nazis were the bad guys, right? There, there has never been any kind of revisionist history that has said, well, wait, maybe the Nazis weren't that bad. Or maybe it... it, it it, it wasn't such a great idea to have a children's comic book where superheroes punching Adolf Hitler in the jaw, right? right. There's, there's the, the story has sort of been written on that, and no one's going to stray from that. Yeah. Um, and so I, um, in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen like the huge upswell in patriotism that came after 9-11. Right. And then uh, maybe some of the consequences of that, people feel like, uh, some people feel like that spurred the Iraq war, which maybe shouldn't have happened. Um, and so the, that idea that American patriotism got subverted, something that, that was bad, I'm not saying that that's what I believe, but that's certainly the narrative in some corners. And I think there are a lot of people in America who still want to feel that sense of patriotism and the idea of a symbol that was created in 1941 when the character was created is something that they can glom onto and feel pretty good about. And they've executed it really well with the modern adaption. And, I mean, I've been to a lot of Things for nerds in the last year, Renaissance Fair, uh, Comic-Con, Star Trek convention, you know, all these kind of things. What was your favorite? Oh, um, uh, good question. There was, okay. uh, I don't know. 
Okay. Uh, okay. And you see Captain America shirts in all of them, right? And like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you wouldn't see, you'd see yeah. Batman shirts. Yeah. Right? But yeah. you wouldn't see, or Superman shirts. Spider-Man. Shirts. Sure. You know. But Captain America was definitely second or third tier. Yeah, it's like almost like he disappeared. Like the whole like, like 90s and like the early yeah. 2000s. I agree. He was like non-existent. Yeah. 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 And, and so uh, I think that that has been... Um, I'm not trying to compare necessarily Forrest Gump and Captain America because they're kind of different. Yeah. Although Forrest Gump is kind of a superhero in his own way, but just like a dumb one. <laughs> He's morally strong, though. He has the moral authority. Sure. Because and he can run fast. Yeah, and he can run fast. Um, getting back to a more another recent movie, um, American Sniper. Um, I mean, there's obviously some very kind of obvious political overtones in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a bit more complex, and I wouldn't really even call it so much a you know brazenly political movie you know, at all. Really, I think it was more of a story. It was sure. a story of a, of a guy, one guy. Yeah, a story of a guy, uh, Chris Kyle. Yeah, and and it, and it get, doesn't get too much caught up in the politics of things. It kind of fo- it focuses more on the story. Sure. But but what what do you kind of think that tells us about it? Just the whole experience. I mean, the success of it obviously was huge. Yeah, one of yeah. The biggest movies. It was the biggest movie of two thousand fourteen, which is yeah, kind of incredible. Um, have you, you've seen it. Yes. Uh, had, were you familiar with the story before, beforehand? I, I, I mean, had, not not much. Only when the movie came out that I read about it a little bit. So. Yeah, I had, I had no idea, and so I, I, I mean, well, I had an idea. I knew he was in Iraq and he shot people, but that was it. Right. I certainly didn't know about any of the external factors that they show of, like, his life after the war or in between tours. Yeah. Um, so the thing that... I mean, there are some people who are very critical of American Sniper because they they thought it was too conservative or, you know, it felt like propaganda for the Iraq War, which it, it definitely isn't, right? No. But the, to me, what makes it conservative is not uh, what's in there, but what isn't in there, right? We don't see any, any rallies against the Iraq War. We don't see uh, critics uh, say, uh, on the news saying, oh, this is uh, blood for oil, that kind of stuff. So... I can understand why those people for whom that was the entirety of the Iraq War was the protesting and stuff, right. why they would feel excluded if that part of their narrative isn't in there. Um, but for the guy who was actually there, being there was all his narrative and how it affected him. And anyway, uh, the, the fact that Clint Eastwood directed it, I think put people in a, in a sense that it was, in the mindset that it was going to be a conservative text to begin with yeah. because of his recent political activities um, notably um, endorsing Mitt Romney and speaking at the convention in 2012 uh, to, to support him. And then those ads he did for the Super Bowl a couple years ago, do you remember those, where he says, like, it's halftime for America? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, yeah, definitely. That was 2011, I believe, early 2011 Super Bowl. Two, uh, 2012, yeah, you're right. 2012, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's halftime, America. Yeah. Yeah, here. So it's got, you know, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. So that put people in a conservative mindset. It doesn't have any of the um, the liberal narrative of the Iraq War. And, you know, our hero brazenly says things like, you know, these people are savages or whatever. Yeah. So there's no kind of multiculturalism. So I can understand if you're a liberal and you go to see that, that you would find it distasteful. Yeah. Um, However, most people in the country don't feel that way, right? Most people see this, this guy as a hero, 
and they see his story as an important one, and certainly realistic in terms of showing the consequences of the war right. for what happened uh, with him and his family when he came home. Well, do you think part of the success was just due to, like, there really has not been a movie, like like a high-quality movie sure. with, yep. with good acting, yeah. you know, good good screenwriting, you know, that's yeah. been out, that's been at least not, not negative, sure. you know? I mean, yeah. we, we could call this one positive, but it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's really even necessarily a positive war movie, but sure. it's, it's a movie that's telling a story. It definitely doesn't have, like, the big negative kind of... Yeah, absolutely. You know, this war was a, a absolutely. big Absolutely. I think you're completely right. Uh, the only other... The only yeah. other... Um, movie or TV show about the Iraq war that is as quote-unquote positive as this that I can think of is Team America from the South Park guys. <laughs> 2004, right? yeah. This is in 2004. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's been 10 years since there'd been any really... And I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, you know, tweet it at us, let us know. Yeah, tweet, tweet us, okay. Um, we got to get a Twitter page. Sure, <laughs> well, by the time you hear this, we'll already have one. Okay. Uh, so, and, and the thing about American Sniper is it was the, it was the token conservative movie on the 10 on the list of 10 movies that were nominated for Oscars yeah. right this year right? this yeah this last year so they have the, they used to just be five nominees and a few years and a few years ago they changed it to 10 so they could nominate more and the you know the stated reason of course is so they could celebrate the, it's all the, the diversity right. of films we have but really what it is is there's only two or three movies that are Oscar bait movies that are in contention and then the rest they'll throw in there just to sort of draw attention to the Oscar ceremony itself. And because of that, they can do the kind of tokenism that they, that they couldn't do when they had fewer films. And so this was the token conservative film. No one ever thought. It was nominated for five other awards. It only won one, which was Best Sound Editing. Best so. Sound Editing. Oh, okay. Yeah. All those gunshots and the Absolutely. sand blowing around. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to do that, and they did it well. It they deserve recognition. Yeah. But it was it was the number one grossing film of the year, despite it it's it's getting snubbed at the Oscars. Uh, it cost less than sixty million. It cost less than sixty million, and its box office was five hundred thirty five million. So that's almost a increase of ten times what it made, what it cost to, to to create it. So that's again very much like like Forrest Gump. Like it's an indicative of a hunger and thirst after a conservative quality literature. And it, I would argue it's also indicative that Clint Eastwood will probably be able to make another movie. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Even though he's like an 80-year-old man, he's probably he's still got it he's in him. He's still got at least another one or two left. Uh, so, um, and we want to, ch- I t- want to touch on one more. Um, we, we talked a little bit about The Matrix. Um, I think that came out in 1999. Yes. Or, I think in 1999. And... You kind of talked about there was some kind of messages in the movie. There's that scene towards the end of the movie where it kind of breaks down to more of like a, a an action kind mm. of movie in a lot of cliche way. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it, it had a message. I, I don't think it was. Um, okay. Yeah. I, it, I don't think you could t- you could uh, deconstruct it politically the way we have with Forrest Gump and American Sniper. Sure. But it's definitely an example of where politics and 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 cinema converged uh, because the thing about the Matrix it, it came out. Shortly after Columbine, right. because of that, there was a lot of sensitivity. The Columbine high school shootings in 1999, about 15 kids were killed, and there was two gunmen. Yeah. It was a very big deal at the time. It was yes. huge. Yeah. yeah. And and the the creators of the show, uh, you know, they obviously didn't have that in mind. They thought it was terrible, just like everybody else. Um but they also didn't want any copycats, right? Right. They didn't want other people to. They didn't want any kid on the six o'clock news to say, 
I put on a trench coat and got my dad's gun and I shot up kids in my school because Neo told me that it was cool. Right, because there's a scene in the movie where they actually do, the, the main characters in the Matrix get into trench coats and they go and attack this building to kind of rescue their a hostage or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're in trench coats. And I saw the movie recently and it kind of took me back to that. I was kind of like, wow, there was that whole kind of like goth trench coat kind of like 90s sure. thing yeah. going on. Yeah. That I think started somewhere in the early 90s, maybe with the movie The Crow or something like that. And then it kind of went through the, yeah. the end. There was like a music, the Marilyn Manson, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. all kind of intertwined a little bit with each other. I mean, loosely, very loosely. But, you know, these kids into the combine shooting, they were kind of somewhat in that. Definitely more on the violent fringe. I mean, sure, most people in this were not nearly as sure. anti-social. Most guns did not murder people. No. I'd say the, the vast, vast majority. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. tiny. So, you know, they left that in. And mm-hmm. your kind of argument was like, it was rated R. Sure, they they, they gave it a higher rating to because they thought that would disincentivize younger kids from seeing it, um, minimize the risk of of uh, copycats, and certainly absolve themselves from any legal problems afterwards. Because you can't say we they couldn't say we made this movie for kids because by the by the rating we obviously made it for adults. Right. So that's that's also kind of a smart uh, marketing. So another movie um, that one people may may not really come off as conservative, um, the movie Juno. Yeah, I think that think one of the reasons Juno was successful is um, it could appeal to either to, to to either people of either political persuasion, whether they're left or right or somewhere in the middle, um, because it's this very uh, you know kind of edgy, realistic. Teen comedy. They're kind of like hipsters. They're almost. hipsters they're very much. Hipster, yes, you know? yes. Yeah. But like the the main thrust of the movie is that girl decides to suffer the consequences of uh, you know this sexual encounter, carry the baby to term, and then give it up for adoption rather than perform an abortion. Right. Right. It's right. like the most pro life message you could ever have in a movie, and it does True. it, and it does it in such a non dogmatic way that you have to be the most partisan, doctrinarian, uh, pro-abortioner in the world to find Juno offensive. And yes, I've talked to people who do fit that category, but it, it, it's pretty much non-dogmatic, right? It's not like the kind of thing you would have expected to see on, on what the, that Christian cable network, PAX. Oh, yeah, I think that's... Yeah. yeah. It, it's not as though at the end it would have said, this message is brought to you by, by the Catholic Church or whatever. But it's still, it, it's, it's in, incredibly uh, uh, conservative. It's about the importance of the family. In her, in her case, it's this kind of blended family where her real mo- her, she's got a stepmom and dad who are, who are married. And, and in her case, she accidentally starts a family, but she's not ready for it. She acknowledges it and then finds a, you know, a family value solution to it. Hollywood um, has been a draw for you. Uh, you, like many others that worked on the Hill or worked in the White House, um, you kind of, you played with the idea of moving to Hollywood and pursuing a career there. Um, do you think for the younger generation, you know, do you think there's any difference between what the pull of Hollywood is, you know, and what it is for you? Like, what, what is the pull to Hollywood for you? Is it like, you know, about making movies and kind of creating these new stories and, or do do you think is that different from what the younger, younger generation Oh, I, well, the thing about the younger generation is if you want to try to be a star now, I wouldn't move to Hollywood necessarily. I'd just try to get a really good YouTube channel. Yeah. So the, the internet in, in, in film and 
as well as everything else, has sort of had a democratizing effect to a certain degree. Um, I, certainly, I think that was the case a few years ago. I don't know if it's that case. It's the case now. I, I have not tried to become a YouTube millionaire, but I know. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, well, there's, there's still time, man. There probably, probably. You, you missed it like the first wave in like yeah, the, I did. 2006, 2007. Yeah, that would have been the time to get on the yeah. early days. The you, were in, West you, were in the, you were in the White House at that time. Right? Oh, Unfortunately. That would have been a great time to start it. It was the wrong age. I'd been born 10 years younger. Yeah, I guess to clarify though, for, for you, I mean, what, what, is the, what was the poll for you to all Hollywood? What was the main... Well, I mean, I think whether it's political or entertainment-based, the whole idea of creating a narrative and trying to move people, whether it's to come see your show uh, or to buy the products that you're selling, if it's just, you know, an advertisement, or to vote for your candidate, there, there's a rhetorical bent to it that, that people want to feel like they can make a difference in the world and they can change the way people think. Uh, I think that's what appeals to everyone on the, who gets involved in those industries. I, I had a professor over at George Washington University. She's actually the director of their political management program. Mm-hmm. Um, we were having this like kind of heated discussion about, I guess, race relations in America and like what what who decides you know what is good and what is bad and what is ideal and what's not ideal mm. in our culture and our society. And um, there was getting some pretty heated opinions, and then finally, you know, someone kind of said, "Well, who decides? Who is who is the they that decides? You know, what's good, what's right or wrong, and all that stuff." And then the professor in, in race relations. It, well, no, no, in in everything in society, okay. like in race relations is one small piece of it, but like you know, who decides? You know, whether we're supposed to live a middle class life, or mm-hmm. you know, what kind of car we should drive, or you know, if you buy diamonds that might be imported, you know, are they bad because they might be blood diamonds? Okay. Or, yeah. Like who's who's kind of like pulling the strings to kind of like really pull the emotions to kind of make people decide rhetorically, like you know, what what their ethics kind of decides, I guess. And she kind of said, you know, look, it's, um, it's Hollywood and Madison Avenue. Hmm. Which Madison Avenue, I think, gets overlooked a little bit. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the marketing kind of apparatus and kind of sure. what we decide, you know, what people follow. Um, I think that's, you know, that kind of looming over this. Um, do you think D.C. has... Go, go ahead. It's interesting about Madison Avenue because I, you know, and I've been involved in some marketing stuff in my career, not a lot, certainly. I wouldn't call myself an expert on that. Uh, the thing about advertising is I think it more tries to capitalize on people's pre-existing mindset rather than try to shape it. Shape it themselves. And you go into a pitch meeting right. and you're like, we're really going to change the way people think about blank. I think you probably get shown the door. If instead you say, people think this way about blank and here's how we're going to use it to sell perfume or whatever, then the executives will say, oh, good, we'll do that. And the example I'm thinking of right now is I remember one... When I was at my college newspaper, there was this, you know, very, very feminist woman on staff, and she was complaining about the advertising for the university's female gymnastics team. And the thing about um, most college sports is they tend to not be revenue generating. Let at my school, sure. they lose money. They lose Almost money, all they, or they're subsidized right. by student right. fees, right? Right. But you know, the football team usually makes money. The basketball team, if it's doing well, makes money. And then in my school, the female gymnastics team made money as well. Um, you went to University of Utah. Yes, yes. We can and say that here. Sure, right? of course. Okay. No secrets. Okay. Um, and the, uh, the, the one thing that this feminist colleague of mine was objecting to is that all the, the depictions 
of the female athletes were made to make them look very graceful and beautiful right. and not like strong and powerful the athletes way. like tough athletes that can really you know, sure yeah. Okay, yeah not like the way football players might be portrayed sure, as like sure. warriors or whatever and um you know we don't need to and I don't have it here with me we, we don't need to deconstruct it I'm sure there are other people who could you know you could do quick google search just the kind of advertising you're using for female sports but like the people who created that marketing they didn't want to change gender ideas right they just right. wanted you to come and pay money to watch the sporting event right so so you're I mean I guess going back but, to my, but ha- having said that because ahead. Madison Avenue to return to your point because Madison Avenue generates so much content um, yes that shapes the way people think Regard, yeah. If the billions of dollars would not be spent on advertising if people didn't think that it had an effect on where people spend their money. But the goal is not necessarily to change them up here in their minds, to change their where they spend their money. I think, I, I think going, going back to the initial point, though, I mean, Hollywood and Madison Avenue, I mean, I completely agree with what my professor said, that those are big forces, maybe mm. even the top two forces. But would you argue that D.C., you know, is, is it in there as maybe like the first or second, or, or do you agree with that? No, I agree. I agree with the basic premise that Madison Avenue and Hollywood have more impact on people than what happens in Washington. Thing is, I think there's a degree to which, I, I similar maybe to advertising, where Washington doesn't try to um, shape the way people think as much as it is just to cater to way the way they already think. Right. I mean, that was the whole Karl Rove model of. Of of the national campaign was not let's try to win over moderates. It's let's ignore the moderates and the people who won't vote for us and just focus on rallying our base. Yeah, well, and, and that definitely at least since um, and I'm not a total expert on this, but I did read a book about um, presidential politics recently. Um, since about the time of Harry Truman or so, mm. you don't really have these like kind of fighting you know, politicians that try to create their own narrative and really try to convince people that they're the right guy. Mm. You have more of this, you shape the candidate to kind of mold the candidate in a way that is acceptable oh, sure. to yeah. the people. Yeah. At least since Harry Truman and probably before, but it, I mean, it's always been there. But since yeah. then, it's really increased a lot. Yeah, know? yeah. And, and there's no better example than Barack Obama. I mean, sure. the whole thing about Barama, Barama about Barack, Barack Obama. then Senator Obama, uh, the way he conducted himself was to be invisible, right? He didn't want to create any impression at all. He voted president more than any other senator uh, during than most senators do in their entire career in the two years he was in the in the upper chamber, uh, because he wanted people to be able to project that onto him, right? You know, he was from Chicago and he was from Hawaii. Hawaii. He was black and he was white. He was American and he was the child of an immigrant. Um, from the Midwest, you know. Yeah, exactly. From so Africa. From the Midwest, from, from yeah. Africa. A yeah. child of the world, right? He's right, post-racial. Right. And, and he, his... <laughs> he wasn't born in Africa, we're just saying. He, no, had, he no. had kind of a heritage. He had the he Asian, had, Indonesian. He had, like, sure. every yeah. area of the world so covered. Raised in the Pacific Islands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, child of Africa, child of Chicago, all these things mixed together. Yeah. And so people could project what they wanted to see on him. Right. And every every man is something sure. that's commonly referred exactly, to. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so and it's much different than Bush, who tried to say, like, there are these two or three different tranches within the Republican Party and the conservative movement, and I can check the boxes on all of these, so I pass your litmus test, so I'll go ahead. Whereas as Obama was just about staying in, invisible and avoiding creating a, a personality and a character, a political character for himself, so that 
people could fill in their own imagination, which is why people got so excited about him, right? In 2008, all that hopey, changey stuff, to quote Sarah Palin, what wasn't really for Obama himself, people had no idea who he was, it was for their own imagination. Yeah. I mean, it kind of runs into me, it's almost like online dating in some sense, that it, it, well, at least it suffers from that same problem, that, you know, you'll get an image, you know, online dating, but then what a lot of people complain about is like, you know, it never quite lives up to the reality sure. in your head. Like, the reality think, doesn't live up to like, what you think dating. in your head. I think that's any kind of, um, any kind of romantic. Sure, but I think, element. yeah, I, I think is whatever you have that distance separating you, and then you have the digital medium now, medium now it's much easier to project an sure. image across further. Yeah. So you get very limited information. You have complete control over what image they're seeing, whereas you're in a room with someone. You don't really have that full control because they're seeing you move around, and you have to be a very, very good actor to really control yourself. Mm. As oh, well. sure. Whereas you can, you can shape your digital persona in a way you can't your real persona. Right. And Yo, so, yeah. And I so agree. people can like throw this whole narrative yeah. and be like, "Oh wow, wow, that is its whole own subject right there." Well, yeah, we're we're getting deep here. So, um, we just want to touch on a couple more topics here. Um, you're into board games. Okay. You've been into board games for a while. Um, what makes a good board game? Oh, okay. Um, length of play. People tend to respond better to a game that's half an hour to an hour. Um, interactivity. People like interacting with uh, human beings. One of the reasons that board games are so successful nowadays is because people like unplugging and just interacting with actual things and talking to people face-to-face. -face. Um, well, I guess that's... That's the second part of my question is, you know, how have they survived so well, like, really in this whole digital era? You know, oh, software, it's, it's, online gaming? Yeah, it's wild. countercultural. Countercultural now. It's the idea is people stare at computer screens all day. They stare at their phones the first thing when they wake up in the morning. They listen to their iTunes when they're jogging or in the car or whatever. They look at their phone again before they go to bed. And so uh, it's, it's, it gives people a chance to not be connected to the Internet and just interact with people in real life. I think that's... I think that's the biggest appeal. Cool. Cool. Um, I guess that's all we... Um, well, thanks, Jared. Uh, thanks for talking. Um, sure. This is a great talk about a lot of yeah. topics. And um, any, any final thoughts or wisdom you want to throw out there? Um, no, just it'll be, it'll be interesting to see uh, the next like, slate of movies that come out in 2015, like uh, how they might factor into the political zeitgeist. Especially as we approach another presidential uh, election next year, and it'll be, uh, you know, we keep saying we've we've kept saying this since two thousand eight, but typically in Republican politics, there's you know a clear front runner, who's the next guy in line is very hierarchical, and there might be some challengers, but he crushes them and then move on moves on, uh, whether it was George W. Bush or. Bob Dole or his father or, or Reagan. These were people who'd earned it, and so it was their turn. But that hasn't been the case for a while um, that we just go with whoever's on top because we don't know who's on top anymore. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that will be representative in pop culture anymore. You know, of course, nowadays we have all kinds of things like like uh, the, the Daily Show or whatever that are very... Um, Media, media savvy political critiques. Sure. Yeah. That are leaps and bounds above weekend update from Saturday Night Live from twenty or thirty or forty years ago. So we'll see what happens. Um, just a quick point on that. Do you think comedy is really, in general, slightly more reliable in the sense that they're not cons restricted 
in what they can say because things have become so polarized. Oh, comedy okay. can straddle that yeah. kind of line between politics a little easier than most media outlets. I, I think one of the advantages with comedy is by nature it's not meant to be taken seriously and so you can kind of wink about it and say like, oh, well, we don't really mean that. Whereas if you're being dramatic about it, then yeah, you have to mean that. Um, like like John Stewart, um, I'm not the biggest John Stewart fan in the world, although you know he's certainly a funny comedian. What uh, the way he has cheated for the last ten, fourteen years, however long he's done the Daily Show, yeah. is he will make these really strong political diatribes. You know, attack people if he disagrees with them. He will invite senators and governors and presidential hopefuls and presidents to come sit and be interviewed by him and kiss his ring, uh, and. Then as soon as someone expects him to take accountability for his political um, um, machina- I don't say machinations, for his political bent, he'll, he'll sit back and say, hey, I'm just a comedian. I'm just on Comedy Central. <laughs> you know, we're, we're on the same show. We're on the same network as, as Cranky Anchors or, or whatever. That's, that's what he said. Always said in 2004. It's that ace in the down. sleeve or get out of jail card yeah, or whatever you yeah, want to call the, it. You know, which but... I think evinces a lack of integrity on his part. Right. But... He makes $30 million a year and I don't sell. I'd be happy to have that little integrity too. If there was a paycheck like that attached to it. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, we hope our listeners keep listening. All right. All right. Thanks, Mark. 